Good to be back in the pulpit this morning. I said it last week. I'll say it again this morning because it still applies. 2020 has been a crazy year. And it's not looking like it's going to get any better. As our children are being dismissed for Children's Church, if you haven't already, so I want to welcome you. We're going through our series here in 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 2 in just a little bit. As we think about 2020, the crazy things that are going on in our world, uh, you can turn on your news and you get your pick of headlines, right? We've had COVID and lockdowns, protests and riots. Now we've got fires and hurricanes. There's presidential elections and Supreme Court hearings. It's a mess out there. But beyond the headlines that seem that we could keep out there, what we've noticed is that the headlines have started to engage in our conversations, our everyday conversations with our coworkers, even our family, our friends, our neighbors. And so as we look at the chaos that's our world, as we look at all the variety of things that we might discourage us, might take us aback, we're confronted with the question, well, how do I respond? If I'm a Christian, what's the right thing to do? What am I to do? What am I to say? How am I supposed to react to this crazy world that we're living in? How is the church supposed to react to all of this? We know as I think about the church at Ephesus, I don't think that their situation was really much different than the situation that we find ourselves in today. Paul is writing to young Timothy. He's telling Timothy to stand up for the truth, to put away the false teachers. At Ephesus, the culture seems to be against them. Nero is, on, is the emperor in Rome. They would have been under his rule. The town itself was not probably very friendly to Christians. It was a very pagan society. Um, all kinds of worship going on from different cultures. They would have been in, in the minority. They would have been understood even just as a sect of Judaism. They weren't very popular I'm sure that there was political pressures as well. One of the biggest contentions the government had with the church at the time was they worshiped the Lord, but they didn't think the Lord was Caesar. And so there's all this contention, and this is what the church at Ephesus is dealing with, not to mention the false teaching and errors that have crept in within the church itself. And so as we continue through our series in 1 Timothy... I just said a moment ago, we're going to open up our Bibles to the second chapter. And it's in the second chapter of 1 Timothy that Paul begins to shift. He goes from foundational truths of the gospel and the experience of the grace in, ver- in chapter 1. And now he's going to move and he's going to talk about how the church should live. How the church should respond to their culture. And in particular, diff- difficult circumstances that abound in. And so he chooses to begin with what should be the number one priority of the church. And that's simply this. Prayer. I know prayer should be the number one priority of the church because that's exactly how Paul starts this second chapter. Verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge 
that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He'll then go on to talk about kings and, and people who are in authority. And then he'll explain why praying for all of these people and all of these groups are so important. And what we'll find this morning is that prayer matters. That's why we begin every service as a church in prayer. That's why we begin this time of preaching the word in prayer. That's why we pray if we were to pass the offering plates during our worship time. This is why when we accept new members into our family here at the Chapel of Lake, we bring them up and we pray. This is why in a few months when we install new deacons and elders, we will bring them up and we will pray. Paul makes it clear the first priority of the church ought to be prayer. Since we believe that prayer matters, we have a prayer chain. Many of you fill out the card in front of you or send an email or call the office and say, hey, will you have the church family pray for this need or that need? Because we understand that prayer matters. As I thought about this topic this week, I think for many of us who have been Christians for a while, we know, intrinsically, we know that, yes, of course, prayer is important. But I wonder if maybe sometimes you're like me, and maybe you forget to pray, or maybe you neglect to make prayer the priority that Paul calls us to, to make it the very first priority in our lives and in our church. Because our text this morning reveals to us that prayer matters for two simple yet profound reasons. We'll see that prayer matters because it aligns our heart with God's heart. And prayer matters because it aligns our lives with the gospel. So as we begin, we see that prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart. Throughout our passage, God's heart for all people is made clear. We get this again from the first verse of this chapter. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First thing that we should notice here is that there are no restrictions. There are no qualifications on who we are to pray for. We are only to pray for everyone and anyone because there is not one person in whom God has not taken a personal interest. God's heart is for all people. And this word all is going to be used several times throughout our chapter this morning. And Paul seems to be combating a particular error that has crept in the church. And this error is that the gospel was only for the Jews, that the gospel maybe was only for a select few. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not the case at all. The gospel is for all people. It doesn't matter whether you have a Jewish background or a Gentile background. It doesn't, mean if, it doesn't matter if you find yourself in Ephesus or in Rome or Jerusalem. The gospel and God's heart is for all people. So Paul tells us how we are to pray for all people. He uses four words, supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving. 
just briefly, these words are all just descriptions of, of prayer, and you could get down into the nuance of how they're different. Supplication being, hey, we're bringing our needs before God. This general word of prayer talks about our devotion to God, the things that we come to God because we know we're in relationship with Him. Intercession, we're coming to God on behalf of someone else, bringing their needs to the throne of grace. And then, of course, Thanksgiving, the attitude which should mark all of our prayers. But I think the point that Paul is making here is not to give us a checklist of things to pray for, is not to go into all of that nuance of how the different ways we can pray. I think Paul is just bundling them all together, re-emphasizing the point that you should be praying for everyone around you in any and every way possible. Why? Simply because the more we pray for those around us, the more we will understand God's heart for them. And God's heart is for all people. And you might be wondering, well, how in the world can I pray for everyone? There's a big world. There's a lot of people. I don't know them. And here's the answer. Well, you can't. At least you can't by name. And I don't think that's what's in view here. Well, who do you have to pray for? Well, I would contend that maybe you should just start with the people that you do know. Instead of wondering about what categories and names of people you don't know, what if you just focused on the people that you did know? Maybe you take out a journal. Maybe you download the app that I use. It's called Prayer Mate, and you can type in names, and then it gives you reminders of like five things a day it gives me to pray for, and it cycles through names and lists that I've created. Maybe you take out a journal and you start to make a list and you just write down your friends and your family. Write down their names and then pray for them. Because as much as we should be praying for all people, I just wonder how often do you pray for your family and your friends? How often do you pray for them? As you list your friends and family, maybe you expand your list to include your neighbors and your coworkers that you do know. And then you list your friends and your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. And maybe you take a church directory home. And you start praying for your church family here at the chapel. And you start going through the directory and you pray for your family by name. And then you pray for the missionaries that are listed in that directory as well. I wonder what would happen if we didn't worry about so much the people that we didn't know but we did focus on praying for those who we do know, that we are connected with. I think we might be surprised if we consistently came to God in prayer for the people that we do know, understanding that there's always more that we could add to our list. And it's there that I need to remind you that the admonition here is to pray for all people, all of them on your list, not just the family that you like, not just the co-workers that you get along with, not just the neighbors that you agree with, but all of them. We're not called only to pray for the people who look like us and think like us. We're also called for the peop- to pray for the people who don't look like us and might not think like us. We are called to pray for all people. And what will happen when you start to pray and your heart begins to align with God's heart, 
He begins to shift our perspective. And then as you start reading the New Testament especially, Jesus raises the bar for prayer even higher. He doesn't just say, pray for the people that you might not like or that you don't really get along with. He says, you ought to pray for those who hate you. He says, you ought to pray for those who sin against you. You ought to pray for those who persecute you. You ought to pray for your enemies. We just get this big picture. One of the first priorities in the church ought to be prayer. And we ought to be praying for all people. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and no doubt due to the current situation in Ephesus, Paul adds in a second reminder in the beginning of verse 2 to pray for maybe the most dreaded of people groups, politicians. It says it right there. For kings and all who are in high positions. He reminds us that yes, kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, governors, all those who are in authority are included in this category of all people. And they are deserving of our prayers. I would contend there are many who are in need of our prayers. But here again, I must remind us that we are to pray for all of those who are in authority over us. That means we are to pray for the president that we didn't vote for. As often and fervently as we pray for the president that we did vote for. That we are to pray for the politicians who we agree with, but also the politicians whom we don't agree with. We could go on and on and name sectors and and governments and spheres of authority. And the same picture would keep coming up. It's not just the people you like. It's not just the people that make you feel better. It's not just the people that might give you a better chance at life. It's everyone. It's everyone. And we are equally called to pray for all of them. Why? Because God's heart is for all people. And it's through praying for them that our heart becomes aligned with God's heart. But Paul continues on in verse 3 and 4, and he tells us not only that is God's heart for all people, but that God's heart is for their salvation. He tells us what the main theme of our prayer should be as he starts to reveal more and more of his heart and character. Verse 3 and verse 4 say this, This is good. The prayers of God's people for all people in every circumstance. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Here is God's heart for the world, that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see this heart repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. We also see this truth repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, the prophet um, says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. 
as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is for all people and for their salvation. So that's how we pray. We pray that they will be saved. And we know that not all will be saved, but we also know that God's call goes out to the ends of the earth and that God is not a respecter of persons. And so this tension between God's call of his elect and man's responsibility to respond, that's a topic for another day. But this morning, what we need to focus on is the simple truth that prayer matters. And we are called to pray that everyone might come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so I want to ask you, because if I've had to wrestle with this all week long, how, who are you praying for? And what are you praying for them? Are you praying for the unbelievers in your life? Are you praying for the people that you know are far from God? Are you praying for their salvation? The politicians, those who are in authority over you, the government officials, are you praying for them? Are you praying for their salvation? Because that's what we're called to do as a church and as Christians, to pray. God's heart here is again shown in verses 5 and verses 6. It's for all people. It's for their salvation. And it's displayed through Christ. It's only displayed through the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5 and verse 6 say this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Here again, Paul goes back to the gospel. He goes back to Christ. He says, for there is one God. It's a call back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Anyone with a Jewish background, background is hearing the words ring in the ears. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Paul takes that, that same language and he says there is one God. But he also says there is one mediator between God and man. We see three parties in view. You have God, you have man, and you have a gulf. We talked about the law and the purpose of the law is to show that gulf. That gulf is sin. God and man separated by sin. So what do we need? We need a mediator, Christ. And through Christ, we can then be united with God once again. This is what it means for Christ to be a mediator. He brings us together. He brings man and God together in union. And this mediator could only be Jesus. Because it's only Jesus who is both divine and human. As a man, as a human, Jesus can represent all men. But as God, he can make eternal payment for our sins by offering himself as payment, as a ransom to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. And so as we pray for people, we must pray that they come to the knowledge of this truth. And as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth that people need to know is Jesus. And through Jesus, we see God's heart for people and their salvation. We pray that they would come to know this Jesus 
who revealed to us the character of God in human flesh. We pray that they would know and experience God's love and his grace and that they would respond to his offer of salvation. And while Christ's death was surely sufficient for all, Scripture is also clear that it is only efficient for those who believe, trust, place their faith in Christ. And so when we put all of these thoughts together, God's heart is for all people, for their salvation, and you see his heart displayed through Christ, his work on the cross. This is how we ought to pray. And if we pray like this, if we pray for people like this, our hearts are becoming more aligned with God's each day. Are you praying? Is praying the first priority in your life? Does prayer mark our services and our gatherings here at the chapel? Paul is urging the church, he's urging the individuals in the church to make prayer a priority in their worship and in their life. Who are you praying for? And what are you praying for them? Is the heart of God evident in your prayers? So Paul is telling us that prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart. But he also tells us through the same passage that prayer aligns our lives with the gospel. If we briefly were to walk through this text again, we can see that prayer is more than just words, more than just an intellectual exercise. It's transforming power in our lives. Prayer aligns our lives with the gospel. It aligns our lives with the gospel by aligning our relationships with the gospel. If we were going back to verse 1, if you were to pray like this for the people you know, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, those around you, we will quickly see a change in not only how you think, but in how you interact with these people. When we earnestly pray, God not only reveals his heart in our heart, we reveal God's heart as we interact with people. So instead of seeing the lost world as lost, a problem, a stain, we look at them like Jesus looked at them, with the heart of God, with compassion. And we start to talk with them with the compassion that only God has. We explain to them God's heart for them, their salvation, and the knowledge of the truth in Jesus. As we pray for those who have hurt us, we're quick to forgive because we understand God's heart towards us and how God has forgiven us. And as we pray, we realize I can't hold a grudge. I can't become bitter because God has forgiven me. So now it changes my interaction with you as I freely forgive, as I freely extend grace, even to those who don't deserve it. This is the story of the gospel. This is God's heart towards us. We didn't deserve it, yet God extended his love and grace. When we hear someone that we just disagree with, our flesh wants to fight, 
say how right we are. But we first pray. We first think and analyze and wonder, do they even know the truth? The truth? Do they know Christ? Because that's the most important battle. As we pray for those in need, we recognize not only the blessings that God has given us, but also causes us to begin to act and to fill those needs when we can. That starts to bleed into our, our next point here. But before we go there, this past week I read these words from a Puritan. His name was Richard Baxter. It was very convicting, so I thought I would share it with you. He's a Puritan, so there's some language that's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth reading. He says this, Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or men in you, let them yearn toward your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize upon them. And if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the words of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to the helping of others? Do you not care who is damned so that you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Dost thou live close by them, or meet them in the streets, or labor with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their soul or the life to come? If their houses were on fire, thou wouldest run and help them. And wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? Prayer aligns our relationships with the gospel, but it also aligns our actions with the gospel. In verse 2, Paul tells us to pray for those in authority over us. He gives us another reason to pray. We are not only to pray for their salvation, for kings and all who are in high positions, but we are to pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, when you first read that verse, it might seem like we should be praying for our own peace and comfort. I just want to live and not anyone bother me. Just do my own thing and pray the government stays out of the way. That sounds nice, but I think it would be a misreading of the text. Yes, we should have a desire, and it's a good desire to have a government and promote a government that would cultivate an environment that would lead to a peaceful and quiet life. But the point here is not our comfort. The point is our gospel witness. The gospel witness, particularly of the church. You see, as we're praying for these kings and all who are in high positions, we're praying that God would capture their hearts. 
not so that we would benefit, not so that we would gain wealth or status, but that they might turn to God. And in so, they would be used by God to promote peace and quiet. Why? So the church could thrive. So the church could be a good witness for the gospel. So that the way that we would live our lives, no matter who is set in authority over us, would be an example in godliness and holiness. And this is how I know it's not just about our own peace and comfort. Nero was on the throne. And our peaceful and quiet life is dependent on us living as godly and dignified people. I wish that we could put a permanent filter, especially on Christians, especially in terms of their speech and social media and everything else. And that permanent filter would be the filter of godliness and dignity. You know, this is why I don't hardly ever engage or post anything on social media. Because you know what? I see kings and those who are in high positions. I see people out there. And you know, I expect sinners to do sinful things. And I expect lost people to do lost things. You know what really bothers me? is the so-called Christians and how they respond and how they talk. And I want to say, where's the godliness? And where's the dignity? But I don't respond and I don't engage because do you know why? Because I'm a sinner. Because I want to engage with my flesh. Because I want to battle. Because I want to debate. Because I want to prove how right I am, how wrong they are, how smart I am, how dumb they are. That's my tendency. That's what I want to do and get and yell at people. And what I think Paul would tell me is, why don't you go pray first? Why don't you go pray and consider your language and your talk and your speech? And why don't you consider how you're going to act and how you're going to interact with people? And then ask yourself before you say or do anything, is this godly? Is it dignified? God forbid if Christians through their words or their actions, bring a stain on the gospel. The first priority for the Christian is prayer. Now this is not to say that there is not a time to speak up. This is not to say that we shouldn't be engaged, that we can't stand for truth, that we shouldn't go vote. Please, vote. But please be educated. Please be considering the gospel before yourself. Please be considering the salvation of all men and all people before yourself. Your own peace and your own comfort. This is not saying that Christians should just bury their heads in the sand and hope that everything's going to be okay or Jesus would just come back. That's not what's being taught here. But what is being taught here is that Christians ought to be marked as ones who are living peaceful and quiet lives by the way they conduct themselves. That what could be said of them by Christian and non-Christian alike is that they live in a godly and dignified way. In every way. 
We must put all of our words and our actions through the filter of godliness and dignity. And that begins in prayer with God. So that your heart would be aligned with His heart. And that then your actions would be in line with the gospel. And lastly, prayer aligns our mission with the gospel as well. In all of this praying, in all of the praying that we've looked at this morning in these few verses, the clear message is this. Preach the gospel. Not so much from a pulpit, but in your speech and in your conduct, in a lost and dying world, preach the gospel. This is our mission to make disciples, to make Christ known, to give them the knowledge of the truth. Preach the gospel. Paul says this in our last verse this morning. For, I, for this, the gospel, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. One more time, Paul is ensuring everyone that they understand he has been appointed by Christ himself to bring the message of salvation to all people everywhere. And as we interact with this world, as broken and messed up as it might be, we have the great privilege of being a Paul. We have the great privilege of bearing the message of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. But it begins with prayer. We ought to be praying for gospel opportunities as we interact with people each day. We ought to be supporting missionaries, both here locally and across the globe. We ought to be praying for the continual spread and reach of the gospel, especially in areas that are hostile to it, especially in areas that Christians are facing severe persecution. But this is an individual mandate to prayer. I don't think it's good enough to say, well, I go to the Chapel of the Lake and they support missionaries. This is a call to every Christian to prayer that the gospel might make impact. And we will never, our actions and our mission in this world won't be aligned with the gospel and it won't be aligned with God's heart if we're not a praying people. I was reading another older commentator from a while back. His name is Joseph Exel. And as we close, he imagines what a world would look like if we earnestly prayed for each other. And so I, I want to leave you with this and then challenge you as we leave this morning. He says this, Imagine, imagine the rich unfeignedly imploring God's blessing upon the poor. And where could be found room for the exercise of envy, of violence, of revenge, and of robbery? Imagine the rich praying for the rich. And where would we be? Or, and where would room be for the display of rivalry, contention, 
and selfish ambition. Imagine the poor praying for the poor. How much kindness and mutual affection would be immediately drawn out into active operation. Imagine those in authority imploring God for a blessing on every measure they undertake and upon all their national policy. And where would any scope for individual and selfish aggrandizement be? Where would any be any disunion of the interest of the ruler and the ruled? Or imagine the minds of the community united in prayer for those whom God has set over them. And where would be the wish for riot, for outrage, for insubordination, or violence? That was written a long time ago just as applicable today. Imagine if we committed as Chapel of the Lake to a people who prayed first, whose desire was for God's heart to transform our hearts, whose desire was that our actions would be aligned with the gospel. So I'm going to challenge you to simply pray. To pray. I'm going to ask you to keep me accountable to prayer as well. In our passage, we're called to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. We're 36 days from an election. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for the next 36 days for our president, for our current president, for whoever the next president might be. I'm not going to pray for my own peace and comfort. I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray for God's will to be done. I'm going to pray that Christians in the next 36 days would pray and put a filter of godliness and dignity upon all their speech and all their actions. But if I'm going to pray that for them, I also need to pray that for me. And I need you to pray for me. And I need you to ask me if I'm praying. And please don't just pray for the election over the next 36 days. There's a whole list of things that we ought to be praying for. Pray for your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. Pray that they, may not, that they might know God, his heart for them, his desire for their salvation. Pray that our actions as a church, our actions as chapel of the lake, would resound with godliness and dignity during this time of craziness. And chaos. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we stand with you in victory. We're thankful that through Christ we can come into your throne room. That through Christ we have the privilege of prayer. And we're told that prayer is effective. I don't know how it works. I just know you tell us it does. So I pray you would help us commit to pray. Commit to pray for hearts and souls to come to know you. Commit to pray for your church, that we may be light for the gospel in this dark time. We pray in your name. Amen.